If you have been tuning in for our latest series, we've called it God in Mondays. And we've been working toward building a solid theology around work, our vocations. Now the term theology just a word that means how we think about God. How do we think about God? How do we think about God and things like sin? How do we think about God and salvation? How do we think about God and suffering? Those kinds of things. How are we thinking about God? That's the practice of theology. And that's what we've been doing about vocation. How do I think about God and my work? Are they even tied to one another? And we've been learning over the past several weeks that, yes, they are tied to, to one another. What I do matters because I am an active participant in the kingdom of God. I am an image bearer of God. Where I go and what I do can and should reflect him and his kingdom. It's life on mission. It's ministry. Wherever you go, whatever you do. Christ is with you, and Christ is in you, and he's using you for his kingdom and his purposes. So we've learned that our work matters. Your work matters, and not just because it earns you a paycheck, though I'm not knocking that because you got to live, but because you are a member of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun, and you're being sent out into a lost and broken and dying world that needs to know that there is more. It's countercultural to see work as ministry. It's more purposeful than a paycheck. And so now, because we've spent this time, the last several weeks, building this sound thinking around work as mission and ministry, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to start building some sound thinking about the idea of rest, a theology of Sabbath, if you will. How do I think about God and rest? For the past couple of months, I've been a part of a cohort that is going through a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. It's by Pete Scazzaro. We've done some of his stuff before. Some of you may have gone through emotionally healthy spirituality or emotionally healthy relationships. But he has this book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader, and I had not read it yet. And so I've been going through this cohort with a group of people, learning about what I am not. <laughs> but we can't change what we're not aware of, right? So one of the chapters that actually hit me the hardest, it, like, it literally left me with a legitimate... I need to change my life kind of moment was the chapter on Sabbath. It was actually, the chapter is actually called Practicing Sabbath Delight. And in my mind, I was like, what is there to know about taking a day off? But once I had finished the chapter, I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't think I Sabbath. I don't think I have ever Sabbathed. Not in the way that we're supposed to. Not in the way that it was intended. And I suspect that I am not alone. Because we are American. I know, I know that I am not the only one who fills my day, my day off in particular, with just other kinds of work. Running errands, grocery shopping, mowing the yard, projects around the house, catching up on laundry. If it's my house, catching up on dishes. Appointments that I couldn't make during working hours. God is a worker. We are workers. 
I'm not here to negate any of that. But God also rests, and I'm not sure that we know how to do that. I'm not sure we even know what that means. And so we're going to learn. We're going to take some time this morning to start building some sound thinking about Sabbath. And then we're going to talk through practicalities. That's our mission today. How do I think about Sabbath, and how do I actually do it? So let me pray over you real quick. Lord, we thank you for the gift that your word is, for the gentle truths that you speak to us. We ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would draw us into your reality, into what you are doing in this world. We love you and we are grateful for your word. So as we begin to form a good theology of Sabbath, it is only natural to begin in the beginning. So we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 1. No, you know what? I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 31, because I can. Okay, here's what it says. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good indeed. So up to this point in chapter 1, verse 3. Through verse 31, God has been working through the process of creation. He gets to this day, and he sees all that he's made, and he says it's very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. The first thing I want to bring your attention to is the, is, is the word Sabbath. Comes from the word rest used in this passage. Used in verse 2. Shavot. That's the verb that's being used here. And it means to cease, to stop working, to be at a standstill. And I actually don't love the translation of rest, especially because of how we understand rest today in our culture. And it has this idea of taking a break because you're tired or you need a moment to recover. And that's not what is happening here. God isn't resting because he's tired. He's resting because the creative work is done. He worked for six days. He saw that what he had made was very good. And on the seventh day, he stopped. Not because he needed a break, but because the creative process was complete. That's why the number seven becomes so important in the Hebrew Bible. It's the number of completeness, of fullness, God completed the work and he stopped, but there's more to it than that. Because God isn't just stopping, he's stopping and settling in to what he has made. The creative work is done. It's complete. There's nothing to be added here. He stops working and he settles in to just be. To just be in the midst of all of his creative work. He's paying attention to it. He's delighting in it. So when we think about Sabbath, it means to stop. That's the easy definition. Sabbath means to stop. But it is stopping with intention. To be present, to pay attention to things, to delight in things. I stop 
so that I can just be guilt-free, joyful even. Do you think that God feels guilty in Genesis chapter 2? of Like, oh, got more to do. It could be doing other things. No, no, because that's, it's delight here. There's joy here. He has stopped and he is seeing that what is around him is very good and he's being present with it. And not just good, he calls it holy. He calls the seventh day holy. And holiness is a hard concept to internalize because we literally have nothing else that is holy besides the Lord. So what are we compared to? Nothing. Like, to be holy is to be set apart, utterly unique. It cannot be replicated. It cannot be duplicated. It cannot be forged. And that's what God says about this seventh day. There is something about this seventh day that is utterly unique. And there is a clue in there for us to pay attention Something else to pay attention to here is that the seventh day is the only day that does not have a clear ending. Every other day up to this point, day one through day six, has a clear ending. Evening came, and then there was morning, and that was the day. Letting us know that one day had ended and a new day had begun. And Hebrew writers did not do things by accident. They were very purposeful in how they communicated concepts and stories So whoever wrote Genesis had been following a very specific formula through day six, from day one to day six, that is not carried into day seven. And I think it's because there is something about day seven that wasn't supposed to end. Now, does that mean that it was just perpetual laziness in the garden? No. God is a worker. We are workers We know that there was work to be done in the garden. That's what the verb keep means. When he tells them, you guys are to keep the garden, to guard it, to cultivate it. There is work to be done, but it's not the kind of work that we are acquainted with. There was some kind of miraculous balance of working in the midst of completed creation and simply being in the midst of created completion, of completed creation. Settling in with the Lord, being present to him, delighting in him and what he had created, participating in what he had declared as utterly unique. The idea of Sabbath predates sin. We don't rest because sin entered the world. We rest because God saw the world and it was very good and he stopped and he invited us to join him in that but we're going to turn to Genesis 3 where we have the account of the fall and Adam and Eve were created to be image bearers of God and to carry out his rule and his reign his dominion over all of completed creation and he invited them into that rule and reign his seventh day rest But there was a competing voice in the garden who told them, you know, like, you can be like him on your own terms. You can be autonomous from him and still achieve the same thing. And they listened. And that that seventh-day rest came to an end. So we're going to pick this up in Genesis chapter 3. 
This is after Adam and Eve have taken the fruit from the tree. They've eaten the fruit from the tree. They saw they were naked. Everybody's in trouble. The Lord comes in, and he's, now he's having a conversation about consequences. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 17. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. There was work before the fall. But it was life-giving work. It was set in the, con- in the context of a very good, completed creation. Very good work done in partnership with God. Working with the land. Working with creation. Not against it. But now... They're slaves to the land. Now they will know laborious work, what it is to toil, what it is to be exhausted by difficult work, by the sweat of your brow is what he tells them. Disordered, chaotic work. And that's how it goes for centuries. Seventh day rest is gone. The idea of seventh day rest is gone. And the idea of work is corrupted until a small event called the Exodus. God wants to return the land to rest. God wants to reconcile creation back to himself. And the entire biblical narrative is telling the story of how he's doing that very thing. And he's choosing a people to do it through, and he's identified them for himself. And that's the family of Abraham. The problem is that by the time we get to the story of Exodus, the descendants of Abraham were not doing great. They were actually doing very poorly, and we're going to jump forward to Exodus. This is chapter 1. So all of Abraham's descendants are in Egypt because there was a famine, and Joseph was in Egypt, and he had a fancy coat, and there were fights. Anyway, you understand why they're in Egypt. But then things happened, and the whole thing went south. Beginning in verse 8, it says, A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are, so come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. And they did this for 400 years. 400 years of slavery, of oppressive work. But it doesn't stop there because God is on a mission to reconcile things back to himself. We're going to pick this up in Exodus 3. This is when God has called Moses to him. This is the burning bush encounter. This is where he tells Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to deliver the people. And Moses is like, okay, cool, all right. But picking up in verse 6, this is God talking to Moses through the burning bush. He says, then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a sweet land. Which should spark our interest because something is happening here. Because we're moving out of oppression and we're moving into a sweet land. And God is wanting to start something new here with them. We're going to jump forward to chapter 5. Moses and Aaron go back to Egypt. They go to Pharaoh and they're like, hey, buddy, uh, we met the Lord. And um, he wants to know if we can take the people and get them out of here. And Pharaoh is not happy. So picking up in verse 4, it says, The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from their labor. Verse 6, that day Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as the foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before and do not reduce it, for they are slackers. This is why they are crying out, let's go sacrifice to our God, impose heavier work. Then they will be occupied with it and they will not pay attention to deceptive words. Anybody ever heard the phrase, if you have time to chat, you have time to work? Anybody? That's what's going on here. He is saying to Moses and Aaron, they must not have enough work if they're able to listen to you. So we're going to give them more work. And he establishes these absurd standards for, for production and it, because he has this idea that if they have time to stand around and listen to idle chat, they have time to do more work. He accuses them of laziness when they can't meet those standards. Pharaoh could literally be the CEO of any Fortune 500 company. If you ever thought that God does not care about how we treat our employees, how we treat cheaply paid outsourced labor, or heaven forbid, slave labor, because that still exists, read the story of the Exodus and come back to me. God cares about oppression, and he absolutely cares about the oppressed. People are not a means to an end. So God delivers the people in a really incredible way. He goes after Pharaoh. He goes after the Egyptians. He goes after their gods. And by the time he's done, there is no question as to who the Lord really is. And he leads the people into the wilderness, and he's leading them into a new land, that sweet land, a new way of life. And before they get to this new land, they have to learn about what this new life entails. What does it mean to be a people set apart for God? What does it mean to be in relationship with him? And that's where we get the law. Half of the book of Exodus all of Leviticus, parts of Numbers, a good portion of Deuteronomy. It's all spelling out what it looks like to be in relationship with God, to be God's people. And that's where we get the Ten Commandments. Don't have idols. 
Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Honor your parents. There's also another one that we tend to forget about. One that we don't treat as importantly as we should. Can you guess what it is? Honor the Sabbath day. The Lord, through the people of Israel, is bringing back a taste of that seventh day rest. We're going to jump to Exodus 20. And this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And this is what he says in verse 1. He says, then, the God, then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Your days centered around the demands of production are done. But if we jump to verse 8, this is what he says about the Sabbath. And this is commandment number four. This comes right after, don't have any idols before me. Don't make any idols for yourself. Don't use my name for things that has nothing to do with. Number four is remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, and you must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servants, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. He tells them, remember the Sabbath day. That verb has this idea of being mindful of the Sabbath. You're going to work, but do all of your work in six days. And then on that seventh day, everything stops. You, your family, your servants, your livestock, the land, even guests. Why? The Lord says, it's because I stopped the creative process. I saw that it was completed. I stepped into a space of stopping and settling in, of being present and engaging with what I made. And so will you. Sabbath is a gift from the Lord for a people whose whole life had been about production. They had just been a cog in the wheel of the machine that was Egypt, an expendable means to an end. And the Lord comes and takes them out, and he says, not anymore. Sabbath, from the beginning, has been a part of God's ordering for the world. Sabbath is the refusal to give your life over to the God of productivity. Your life is not defined by productivity. And God is saying, you're going to work. That's part of the way the world is right now. But you're not going to give your life to work. And the culture of Egypt was not done with Egypt. It's a world history problem, a global problem. Imperialism, colonialism, slave trade, Dare I say, capitalism, where everyone and everything becomes this expendable means to an end. 
just so that we can produce more and eat more and drink more and have more and have all of the resources that we can accumulate. Wayne Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar who's written quite a bit about the idea of Sabbath, and he has called the problem, very succinctly, he has called the, pr the problem the reduction of human life to the requirements of the market. The reduction of human life to the requirements of the market. That means human life. Image bearers of the eternal God reduced to the demands of productivity. And since the fall, this is the way it has been. And God says, no. No. You will work, and I will give your work purpose. But one day, every week, you, are, you will actively and purposefully step out of that current of mindless productivity and demands of the market, and you will step into the reality of seventh-day rest. You will settle in and be present to the creation that I have made, to the heartbeat of what I am doing in the world. When was the last time you looked around you and actually delighted in the moment? So Sabbath is about delighting in God's creation, his blessing, and his provision. It's not just a day off. And here's the thing. Sabbath is a gift. We've talked about that. Sabbath is an invitation that the Lord extends to us. But Sabbath is also a command. It's actually the most elaborated of the Ten Commandments. And we don't acknowledge it like it's a big deal. Last time I checked, murder was still a big deal. Adultery was still a big deal. Idolatry was still a big deal. But somehow with Sabbath, we're like, mm, I don't need a day off. In the Mosaic Law, to, to not partake in the Sabbath, to fail to participate in that seventh-day rest led to death. I know, like, whoa, like not taking a day off means I have to die. I hope we're starting to see that Sabbath, the idea of Sabbath, is more than just taking a day off. And failure to participate in that seventh-day rest is sin. It's sin. In not stepping out of the demands of productivity, you are claiming autonomy and self-sufficiency, and you are placing yourself above the Lord, and that is idolatry. Sabbath, stopping renounces autonomy and self-sufficiency. It acknowledges limits. It affirms God's dominion over time, over space, over resources, over this planet. Keeping Sabbath is an act of trusting that God is sovereign and in control, that the world won't fall apart because you have stepped out of the stream of productivity for 24 hours. It's this idea of, I can rest, and God will provide. And God takes this seriously. One day in seven is given over to seventh-day rest. That's 52 days a year. It's also one-seventh of your life. 
If you live to 70, that means that you should have spent a full decade of your life participating in this seventh-day rest. We need to take this seriously. That's not even included any kind of extended vacation or sabbatical time. Just by observing the one day in seventh, one-seventh of your life. For the ancient Israelites, the idea of seventh-day rest, it didn't just stop with one day in seven. There were seven festivals in the ancient Hebrew calendar. All of them incorporated aspects of seventh-day rest. Every seven years in the Hebrew calendar, slaves were supposed to be set free, deaths were supposed to be forgiven, the land was supposed to be given rest for the whole year. Every seven times seven years, that would mean 40, the 49th year, it would be that, seven, that standard seventh year practice of the land gets rest, everybody gets rest. But then, in that 49th year, on the Day of Atonement, that means the day that the sins of the people are forgiven, a horn would be blown, and then another year of rest would be announced. That the 50th year would be an extended time of rest. And that was called the year of jubilee. And that's deaths are forgiven. The land is returned to families. Um, slaves are set free. The land is given rest. Animals are given rest. Every 50th year, it's a once-in-a-lifetime event that was supposed to happen of extended rest in the land. It stops you know what? I was going to skip over Leviticus. We're not going to. We're going to jump right into Leviticus. It's not the most exciting, but by golly, there's good stuff in there. So here's, here's this idea of Jubilee. We're actually going to pick this up in verse 8. It says, you are to count seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49. Then you are to sound a ram's horn loudly on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You will sound it throughout your land on the day of atonement. You are to consecrate the 50th year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. It will be your jubilee when each of you is to return to his property and each of you to your clan. Creation is not a means to an end resources to be exploited. And this idea of, of seventh-day rest isn't just for people. The Lord even extended it to animals, to the land. Everyone gets rest in this 50th year. And the, it's that word freedom. It prevents too much land, too much money, too many slaves. No one person would own that much. That's what Jubilee would prevent. Sabbath is the idea of ceasing and settling in. But after the fall, after Exodus, it gains this idea of freedom. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from the demands of production. Freedom from debt. Freedom from labor. Feeling freedom from the feeling that you need more and then more and then more. It's freedom to step out of that current of striving and toiling and step into the reality that you are loved by God simply because you exist, not because of what you bring to the table. There is actually no evidence 
that the year of Jubilee ever took place. None, ever. And the prophets write about how the people do not honor the idea of seventh-day rest. They exploit people. They exploit the land. They place themselves above Yahweh. And they lose the land. They spend 70 years in exile. And then after that, there are 400 years where they don't hear any new hopeful message from God. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. I feel like I say that in every sermon. There's like one point in every sermon where I'm like, and then Jesus. (laughs) God bless that man. So we're going to jump forward to Luke chapter 4 because I want to take a look at what Jesus might have to say about this idea of seventh-day rest. This is Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 14. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Uh, This is after the temptation in the wilderness. And news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. And he was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. Verse 16. He came up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. What day was it? Sabbath. Interesting. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, because he's Jesus, he then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. It's a huge deal. He actually is reading from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus, in announcing his ministry on the Sabbath day, on this day of of rest, is also announcing the year of Jubilee. A year that never came, ever. Up to this point in the biblical narrative, it has only ever been a hoped-for event. And Jesus shows up and says, this is happening now. You are witnessing this happen right now. Seventh-day rest, liberty and freedom and healing and favor. It's coming with me, and it's starting now. Do you know that the only miracles that Jesus performed on the Sabbath day were healing miracles? On the seventh day, people were being restored. I wonder if there's something there. There was also the seventh day. The Sabbath day led to a lot of conflict with the religious leaders because they couldn't see the forest through the trees. They saw what he was doing on the Sabbath day, and they were like, "Mm, you're working. 
And then he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, like, don't come at me, I came up with the Sabbath. And they didn't like that either. It wasn't about, for them, it was not about engaging with the eternal God in seventh-day rest. It was adherence to a bunch of rules and regulations. A day off where certain activities were prohibited. But I want, you to hear, I want you to hear me when I say this. The idea of Sabbath has not been created to be a cumbersome thing to you. A weekly drudgery of things you can't do. Sabbath is a gift. It is freedom. It is rest. It is space to exist fully as just yourself. And the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who announced his ministry on the seventh day and said, I am bringing Jubilee with me, is inviting you into this space of seventh day rest with him to cease work and productivity and to settle in to his reality. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Not just a day off. Freedom, healing, restoration, a taste of redeemed creation. Is the Sabbath, practicing Sabbath in this way, is practice for eternity, for creation at its fully redeemed state. And we're invited into that now. We get a taste of eternity now. Sabbath is a gift, but it's also not an option. So the question now is, how will you engage in seventh-day rest? So here are some practical steps. We're running out of time, so we're going to move through this pretty quickly. Practical steps. Number one, plan for the Sabbath. Plan. Mark out a time and plan for it. It may change from week to week depending on the seasons of life. Sometimes my Sabbath is on a Saturday. Sometimes it's on a Monday. It just depends. But I know that I have to plan for it or it becomes a container for everything else that doesn't happen in the week. I prepare for work. Why would I not prepare for the Sabbath? So plan. Mark out time. Be aware of your calendar. Set that day apart. Let it become an utterly unique day to the rest of your week. Number two, keep it simple and joyful. Think about your Sabbath in terms of delight versus drivenness. Am I doing this because I want to? Or am I doing this because I have to? I know that it's difficult to stop. I know that drivenness is difficult to combat. My Sabbath was yesterday, and I fought all day long to, like, find a way the feeling of, like, I could start a load of laundry I could probably clean up the bathroom. you got to fight against that. So what are the activities that bring you delight in that day? What do you want to do? What sounds good to you? What sounds fun and enjoyable? Do those things. A couple of weeks ago, my Sabbath was on a Monday. I woke up at 9.30 and I knew I wanted pancakes. I also knew I didn't want to make them. So I went and got breakfast. By myself, I read a book, it was lovely. I came home, I read some more. It got to be about 11.30 and I was tired. And probably because I had stopped long enough to pay attention to my body. So I was like, I might lay down, take a nap. I slept for four hours, it was awesome. 
I woke up feeling awesome. Then I went for a walk. I did not read my Bible. I did not spend extended time in prayer. But I just existed and let myself be loved by the Lord for doing nothing. I have spent so many years of my life filling my days off with other kinds of work or simply checking out with numbing behaviors because I didn't have to do anything. And because of that, I missed what a gift it is to simply be present in the day and in the moment, to delight. So what are the activities that bring you delight? And here's the thing. Here's a quick note. We don't judge each other on our seventh-day delights. What may be a delight to me may not be a delight to you, and vice versa. There's freedom in Sabbath, so we don't knock each other's delights. So number one, we plan for Sabbath. Number two, we keep it simple and joyful. Number three, we set clear boundaries as to what we will do and what we won't do. I hate mowing the yard. It's not a delight to me. I think it is a, like, just a tedious work and futility. It's just going to grow back. I hate it. But some people love mowing the yard. So maybe that's on your will-do list. It's not on mine. I won't make appointments. I won't grocery shop. I don't do dishes. Do the things that are a delight to you and not the things you don't have to do. But make that list and be clear about it. What are the things that bring you joy? If cleaning brings you joy, great. More power to you. Not me. So that will not be on my Sabbath list. And then what are the will do? What are the things that do bring you joy that you don't get to do through the rest of the week? Maybe extended dinner with friends. Maybe a quick road trip. Make a list. And worship team, you guys can come back up with this last one. Number four, give yourself grace. Sabbath is a spiritual discipline. It takes practice. Some may be better than others. It's also a malleable container. It may change shape a bit. But just remember that it's not a burden you have to accomplish. Sabbath is not about accomplishment. It's just about existing and being fully loved. It isn't just about rest either. It's about trusting that God is in control of every area of our lives. If you want to do a further study on the Sabbath, I've noted, I've noted a few books that you could get into. So take a look. Do more reading. Read the Gospels. Pay attention to what Jesus says and does on the Sabbath because they're not accidental. And ask the Lord what he may be saying to you of letting go of your drive for productivity. So the challenge I leave with you today is to accept the invitation into seventh-day rest. One out of every seven days, you get to pick. Step out of that current of production and demand and settle in to simply being with and delighting in God's goodness and favor. The work can wait. It'll be there the next day. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for the invitation into rest. We thank you for the invitation into your creative work and world. We ask that you would forgive us for not taking this command seriously. 
We ask that you would begin to stir in our hearts what it means to actually stop and be present and delight in you. We love you. We are grateful for your invitation, for your presence, for your love. Help us to recognize that even when we're doing nothing, you still delight in us. What a gift. It is in your mighty name we pray. Amen.